Megan and I, Megan's my wife, we haven't been married for too terribly long, five years, but we dated for five years before that. So we have been together for about a decade, which is a significant portion of my life. And a feature of our relationship has always been this practice of going to coffee shops together, playing cards, and just connecting. Uh, It started when we were students in Chicago. Uh, We fooled ourselves into thinking that we were going to get a lot of homework done. We were going to do a lot of studying, but really we just did a lot of flirting and, uh, you know, not much studying got done. Uh, But to this day, we still love going to coffee shops whenever we're out of town, traveling, visiting friends. We love to see a coffee shop, bring a a deck of cards and just be together. Uh, In fact, it's one of my favorite memories from my honeymoon. We're not uh, beach people. We wanted to go towards the mountains. That's partly why we live in Colorado. So we ended up going to Iceland for our honeymoon, and it was fantastic. We got to go kayaking in the fjords. We got to go hiking around geysers and waterfalls. We got to go whale watching in the Greenland Sea. It was a fantastic time. But some of my favorite memories from our honeymoon are just sitting at the different coffee shops in these different cities in Iceland. Just playing cards, drinking tea, drinking coffee, and connecting with each other. And if we stop and think about it, I bet for each of us in this room, you have some amazing friends that you've had awesome adventures with. You've made fantastic memories with those friends. But I bet the friends you would call your deepest, your dearest friends are those friends that you can talk to about anything. You can share your heart openly with them. You can connect with them. You can share your fears, your worries, your hopes, your dreams It's those heart friends where we find deep intimacy. Those are our closest friends. It's another reason why Megan and I love to go backpacking. Because when you're off the grid, no cell phone service, all you can do is talk, connect, maybe even in silence, just be together. And this kind of deep intimacy that I'm talking about isn't just for married people. It isn't just for for the the people in this room who have a long-term committed relationship. It's the desire of every human heart. And honestly, any married person who's honest would tell you that that deep longing for intimacy isn't satisfied in any earthly relationship. We were made for intimacy with God. We were made to know God and be known by God. I bring this up because that's our primary topic today. We've been in this fall sermon series all about discipleship. In the first half of that sermon series, we talked about the identity of a disciple. The identity of a disciple is a beloved child of God who is blessed, broken, resurrected, and fed. And then last week, Tim gave this kind of hinge point sermon in this series, talking about the posture of a disciple, the disciple who always wants to grow as they look to the face of Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we're talking about practices. What does it look like to walk in the way of Jesus to live like Jesus lived, to follow his teachings. And the first practice we're going to talk about is the most fundamental, the most essential practice of any disciple of Jesus, prayer. Entire libraries have been written on the topic of prayer. So I'm not going to pretend today that I'm going to say anything brand new or anything amazing. But as we do this flyover of the topic of prayer, I do think it's going to be really helpful. I hope it helps remind you of some of the incredible theological foundations of your prayer life, why you are able to go to God in prayer. And it also gives you some helps to overcome some stuck places in your prayer life. So if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be starting in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, story of Mary and Martha. And we're going to launch out from there to a lot of other passages. So keep that Bible at hand. Uh, But we're going to see four things today. 
First, what is prayer? And I'm going to give you a simple definition. Prayer is the practice of intimacy with God. Secondly, how is prayer possible? How can sinful human beings actually have a relationship, an intimate relationship with the God of the universe? Thirdly, how can we uh, over... Well, actually, fourthly, will be how we can overcome prayer. But thirdly is why is it essential? Why do I call it the foundational, the essential practice of discipleship? And then fourthly, how can we overcome barriers to prayer? So Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. Now, as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So the first thing we're talking about, what is prayer? And I give you this simple definition. Prayer is the practice of intimacy with God. Now, when we look at our passage today, we don't see Mary praying as we typically think of prayer. She's not lifting up petitions. She's not confessing her sins. She's not giving thanks and praise to God. No, but Still, this passage is about prayer. In fact, throughout church history, it's often been interpreted this passage as as an importance of drawing away a contemplative life of being with God against an activist life that's always doing things for God. And while I think the church at times has gone to an extreme with that message, that we actually do need to be in the world, although not of it, and active doing things for God, Jesus is teaching us something important here about the essential nature of prayer. That one thing is necessary, one thing is the good portion, one thing orders all the activity of your life, and that's intimacy with God. So what is Mary doing? Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him. And I don't think you're going to find a better definition of prayer than that. Sitting in the presence of God, listening to him, and he listening to you. That's what prayer is. And here's why I say that. There are a lot of definitions for prayer. There's a lot of different ways to pray. Buddhists pray, Hindus pray, Muslims pray, even atheists pray. There's this study from 2004 that said something like 10 to 17% of atheists admit they pray regularly. That's weird. I don't know what they're doing. They don't believe in God, and yet they pray. Prayer is, is part of human nature. So then the question is, what is prayer according to the scriptures? What does it mean to pray according to the Bible? Because it's not a descent to the ground of being, like it might be defined in Buddhism. It's not an internal reflexive conversation so I can draw closer to my inner self. That's not what the Bible says. It's not lofting up petitions to an unknown God in the distance somewhere. That's not what the Bible says either. No, it is a personal communion and communication between God and his people. That's why I say prayer is the practice of intimacy with God. You see it all over the scriptures. In our psalm today, Psalm 27, we read, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. What do we hear in that passage? This mutual desire this strong desire for God and God's desire for us, for us to draw near, to to come seeking his face, seeking connection, communion, 
intimacy, to know God and be known by God. It's actually what we were designed for. In the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, the very first question in the entire Bible shows us God's desire to connect with us. The first question in the Bible is when Adam and Eve have sinned, they've disobeyed God, they, they sow fig leaves together, and they hide from him. And God, the, the all-wise, omniscient God of the universe, comes into the garden and asks, where are you? Do you think he doesn't know? Of course he knows. He knows exactly where they are. He knows exactly what they've done. God asks, where are you? Because his heart is broken. That they are now separated from him because of sin and shame. There is a, a separation, a gap between them where they were meant to have communion and intimacy. God says, where are you? Where have you gone? He longs to be with his people. He desires intimacy with his people. I want to tell you, he desires intimacy with you. It's not just the, the original plan that we, that we messed up. It's our ultimate destiny. It's what Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. When we are in the new heavens and the new earth, in our resurrected bodies, present face to face with the resurrected Jesus, we will know him fully. How is that possible? I don't know, but it's going to be amazing. Our ultimate destiny is to have that intimacy with God that we would know him as he knows us today. So the amazing thing is prayer is the stopgap. Prayer is the in-between. We once were present with God in the garden. One day we will be present face-to-face with Jesus. All along the way, we've been meant to have communion, to have intimacy with God. And today we have it by prayer. There are a ton of other Bible passages we could look at. We don't have time. There's too much to be said about prayer. But I guarantee you, everywhere you look in the Bible, when somebody prays, they believe in a God who is personal, who is real, who hears, who responds, who loves them, who is trustworthy. Prayer is a personal communion and communication with the God of the universe. It is a practice of intimacy with God. So how is it possible How can we, fallen, sinful human beings, have this relationship with God? We've already seen that we lost it. And in the garden, we sinned, we disobeyed God, we took the fruit that we should not have taken. And because of our sin, we were covered in shame, we hid from God, and ultimately the curse that was put upon us because of our sin was separation. We were cast out of the garden. And so there's this theme throughout the Bible Sin is absolutely evil, and it's our guiltiness before God that must be judged. But sin is also separation that results in exile. You see it everywhere in the Bible. God's people are separated, are distant from him, are exiled from him because of their disobedience, because of their unfaithfulness. But the other message of the entire Bible is God is constantly working to draw his people back to bring them back to connection, to intimacy, to communion with himself. We see it chiefly in his people, Israel. He raises up Moses to be the leader of his elect people. And he gives them the law, reminding them again that they've fallen so far short of obeying God's holy standard. And yet he also gives them all these ways to come near. He gives them the tabernacle and then the temple under Solomon. He gives them the Levites and all the sacrificial system so that again and again, God can say, I want to fellowship with you. Atone for your sin. 
Repent of your evil. Come near. I want to be near to you. Just this week, Jews around the world celebrated Yom Kippur, which is now just about repentance. But at one time, it was the singular day, the day of atonement, in which the high priest of Israel could enter into the Holy of Holies, the center of the tabernacle where the presence of God was most present. And we could be near to God because of blood sacrifice, because a lamb was slain and that blood was sprinkled to cover over the people, to cover over all their sins. And their sins were placed upon the scapegoat who was sent out into the wilderness to carry their guilt away. But you see, this sacrifice had to be repeated every year. All of these sacrifices, all of these symbols, they were just a type. They were just a foreshadowing of the one true day of atonement where the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world, Jesus Christ, would redeem us from our guilt and bring us near to God. When Jesus died on Calvary, the Gospel of Matthew tells us the curtain in the temple tore in two. Why? Because the barrier that was between us and God had been removed. As Hebrews 10 tells us, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Why are sinful human beings able to be present to the holy God of the universe? Because there was nothing that God was willing to withhold that he might have us. He gave his own son unto death so that he could have you and me, so that our sin could be atoned for, so that our guilt could be taken away, so that we could be welcomed back into his presence. More than that, we're not just welcome guests. We are made his own children. As Romans 8 famously says, all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the spirit is not a spirit only of sons and excluding daughters. In the Greek, it can be translated sons and daughters, but really the emphasis is that our Sonship, our, our daughtership in Jesus is why we're accepted, the one true Son of God. And so when we put our faith in Him, the Holy Spirit unites us to Him and makes us God's own beloved children, so that when we come to the Father in and through Jesus Christ, He says, That's my beloved child with whom I am well pleased. How are we able to have this intimate relationship with God? As we come to the Father who loves us, in and through the Son who gave himself for us, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, reminding us, you are God's beloved child. Last year when I taught our catechism course, I reminded our, our course, there are many ways to pray. You can pray to your creator, to your Lord, your master, your king, but there's one way that is the most Christian way to pray, to your Father in heaven. That's how Jesus teaches us to pray. Because that is the new relationship you have. God is all of those things. He's creator, he's Lord, he's master, he's king. But primarily, he is your father. 
You are his beloved child. And you have infinite access, immediate intimacy with God because of what he has done in his great love for you. So prayer is the practice of intimacy with God made possible through the the very Trinitarian life of our God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But why is it so essential? Why do I call it the foundational practice of discipleship? When Martha complains to Jesus, he gives her this response. Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus says to Martha, one thing is most important. One thing is necessary above all else. One thing will order the rest of your life, and that's seeking intimacy with God. Elsewhere, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I want to tell you this morning that prayer is the practice of abiding with Jesus. How would you connect with him, commune with him, regularly walk with him if it weren't for prayer? There are a lot of views on how Christians grow, how Christians mature over their life of faith, but there are really kind of three primary opinions. And you've seen these play out probably in churches that you've been a part of. In a lot of the Reformation traditions, which we stand in, one of those theories is informational. You grow as you learn more about your faith, learn more about God, learn more about the scriptures. And we think if I get all the information, I'll grow. And here's the reality, you won't. Information is not sufficient. It's absolutely critical. You do need to know your Bible. You need to know God. You need to know more about your faith. But if all you've got is information, you won't grow. It might actually harden your heart to God. It's not sufficient. Another pathway that's really common, more on a Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, is inspirational. I need to have big experiences of God. I need to have an encounter with God that transforms my life. And so they're always seeking a new high, a new big emotional experience of God's presence in their life. But what happens when God chooses to work quietly in your life without sign or wonder? When your faith starts to flounder? That too, inspiration is not enough to grow you. You see, the way the Bible teaches us we actually grow is through interaction. Through interacting every day with Jesus. Through prayer abiding with him, continually coming back to this place of intimacy, this place of communion with our God, knowing him not just informationally, but knowing him experientially. And not just the mountaintop experiences, not just the big transformative events, but the simple, the mundane, the everyday walk with Jesus. And it can only be had by prayer. Tim Keller puts it this way in his book, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way we experience deep change, the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us the many unimaginable things he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things we most desire. It is the way we know God, the way we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. And it's no exaggeration. If you would be transformed, if you would see Jesus' life grow in you, if you would see your faith grow over time and mature, you need to pray. There's no other way to grow 
that walk in this daily communion, this daily intimacy with your God. Prayer is the practice of intimacy with God made possible through God's own Trinitarian life, essential for our growth. But anybody who has made an effort to live a life of prayer will tell you it's really hard. It's hard to pray. We pray to a God who we cannot see. And though God absolutely speaks to his saints, most of us, most of the time, aren't going to hear an audible voice. Instead, we need to learn to hear his voice inwardly as the Holy Spirit speaks to our own hearts. And so prayer is challenging. There are all kinds of blocks, but I think there are probably two blocks that are bigger than all the rest. And the first block really is passivity. You see, most of our relationships, when they crumble, it's because we're passive. Well, in the same way, when we are passive in our prayer life, our relationship with God crumbles. Passivity is this block in our, all of our relationships. But there's a, a word the church has had for a long time about the, the spiritual passivity we often experience. It's acedia. Acedia is the sin of apathy, the sin of spiritual torpor and listlessness, no direction in your life, simply filling up your life with distractions and busyness rather than being focused on God. And I think this often happens to us We fall into acedia, into apathy, into listlessness because our spiritual life becomes this series of oughts, shoulds, must, obedience, and and, and all the things you ought to do. Now, we do have an obligation to God, but if you've been listening to anything I've been saying this morning, then you'll realize prayer is a privilege. Prayer is a joy. It's a blessing. The God of the universe wants to know your heart. The God of the universe wants to connect with you. And so the way to overcome this block is to rekindle our love for God by reminding ourselves the intimacy and nearness we have in Jesus Christ. I had a teacher at Denver Seminary, he was in the spiritual formation program, say, whatever makes for good friendship makes for good prayer. Jesus says in John 15, I call you my friends. And that applies to you and I today. Jesus is our friend. We're not just his pupils, not just his servants, not just his disciples. We are those things, but we're also his friends. So I ask you, how do you connect with your dearest friends? You can connect with Jesus the same way. Go on a hike with Jesus. Go sit down for a coffee with Jesus. Share your heart with him your fears, your anxieties, your worries, your hopes, your dreams, your joys. God wants to know your heart. He is your friend. Remind yourself what great lengths God went to to be near to you, to have communion with you. It's not simply an obligation that we pray. It's a gift. It's a blessing. It's an honor. And the second big block that keeps us so often from praying is shame. We're ashamed of our behavior. We're ashamed of our sin. We're ashamed maybe of our acedia. We've been really passive in our spiritual life and distance has grown between us and God. And now I'm ashamed of that distance and it compounds. I think the problem here too is we think so often of our worldly, our earthly relationships. We think about the friends that we've hurt and we've disappointed 
how they recoil from us, how they might become cold towards us. They're frustrated with us, angry with us. We think of God sticking, you know, giving us a stiff arm, keeping us at arm's reach. But you need to know that because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, nothing could be further than the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. You see, God is the father from the prodigal son story. The moment you turn, he is there. The prodigal son who was wasting his life in sinful ambition comes to his senses and decides to go home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I don't care if you have been moving miles and miles apart spiritually from God. I want you to know the moment you turn, he is there. The moment you turn, he is ready to lavish his love, his mercy, his grace upon you. The gospel tells us we don't need to turn and then climb the mountain, repair our relationship, fix all that we've broken, make it up to God for all, how we, all the ways we've failed. No, the moment you turn, you recognize you've been distant, you've been passive, you've been disobedient. Turn back to God. He is ready to lavish you with his love, with his grace, with his mercy. He's ready to throw a feast for you the way that he did for the prodigal son. So I don't know where you're at this morning with your spiritual life. I don't know if you feel drained, if you feel apathetic, if you feel distant from God. I don't know if you're ashamed of some of your choices, your decisions, your behaviors, and that shame has kept you at a distance from him. But if you want to be close to God this morning, if you want to turn, if you want to return to this intimacy that we have in and through Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, then we need to throw a feast. We need to go to the table, the feast of our Lord, where he so intimately gives himself to us. It's God's greatest delight to be with you. Hebrews 12 teaches us, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame for the joy set before him. Church, that joy is you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so often cold and distant, apathetic in our love for you and prayerless. Would you rekindle a fire in our hearts? Would you remind us how tender and gentle and merciful you are, that you long to be near us? It is your great desire to have intimacy with each one of us. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Remind us of who we really are in Jesus Christ, that we are your beloved children, and all we need to do is turn. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.